The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, give your inner child a time out and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 270 with guest Eric Meyer, recorded live Tuesday, September 4th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who really loves Link, I think, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, your host. Richard will be joining us momentarily for the interview, so I'm going to do the intro solo. Uh, I've done that a few times before, and uh, let's just get right into... Better know a framework. Kids, today I'm going to tell you how to download a file via HTTP with just a few lines of code. Well, it's more than a few lines of code, but uh, surprisingly few lines of code. What we're looking at is the system.net.http uh, web request and the HTTP web response, and the web request uh, classes. The way you do this is you use the web request.create. It's a static method or a shared method for you VBers. And you pass the URL to that and cast that to an HTTP web request, and that is the key. So you, get a, you use web request.create, pass the URL, you cast that to an HTTP web request, and now you've got the request object. You set the method property of that request object to get, and then you call the getResponse method and cast that to an HTTP web response object. So now you've got your response object. You can find out how much data is available from this URL uh, with the content length property of the response, and there's a getResponseStream method on the response, which returns a stream. And that's what you can use to, to read the data from that stream and close it when you're done. Now, you got to close the stream, you got to close the response, close the request, but that's about it. And, of course, you know, it's a stream, so you can do whatever you want asynchronously or synchronously, do whatever you want with it. So that is your Better Know a Framework for today. And uh, just a couple of things to mention here before we get started. Um, TechEd Europe is going strong, and we have a contest. We're giving away two 24-inch LCD monitors. That's right. All you really have to do is go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona and uh, fill in a few forms and answer a question from uh, from last week's show. And, uh, you know, we're going to pick a winner every week from the people who got the answer right. Those winners are going to get a Tom Bin brain bag. Awesome stuff. And then the weekly winners uh, will go into a pool and we'll pick from them on October 30th for the winner 
of the two winners of the LCD monitors. 24-inch LCD monitors we're giving away, folks. All we want is a little uh, little uh, demographic data from you once, and then you can, uh, every week, you can submit a new question and try for that monitor, try for the brain bag. Good luck, and don't forget to check out the link for TechEd Europe in Barcelona, Spain. Also, Greg Brill at Infusion.com, still hiring people. If you want to spend a year in Manhattan working uh, in an exciting financial industry with a bunch of very creative people and living in Manhattan rent-free for a year, you heard me right, they're going to pay your rent for a year on top of a salary, uh, check it out. Check out the offer at shrinkster.com slash kh6. Okay, Richard, it's uh, time to introduce Eric. Eric Meyer is a technical lead in the Web Data Group. His alter ego is VBTV's Head in the Box. If you remember Ari Bixhorn's VBTV project, very funny stuff. Before joining Microsoft, he was an associate professor at Utrecht University, where he worked on advanced scripting languages such as Haskell, XM Lambda, and Mondrian, and directed the Microsoft Lab, which is now defunct. He's currently working on language and type system support for bridging the worlds of object-oriented uh, CLR, relational SQL, and hierarchical XML data, and of course, first-class functions. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you doing? We uh, talked to you briefly on an older episode. We were at TechEd. I think it was 2004. It was, it was, yeah, it was PDC 2005, It was actually. PDC 2005. Okay, good. And uh, we just were stuffed away in a room, and you were talking. Uh, we were talking briefly about the things that were going on, but a lot has changed, and uh, you were hinting at Link back then. But, uh, wow, here we are. Yep. It, Two, it's almost two years later on the nose, and Link is, and Link is out. Yep, that's quite amazing. You know, that's. Uh, um, I still remember when we were talking there in this kind of little room, uh, like uh, in the, at PDC somewhere, kind of in a little back room. Yep. Um, yep. So yeah, and you know, in the two years, uh, quite a lot has happened. Uh, Link uh, evolved from you know, like a little prototype to a real product. What uh, what was your hand in the whole thing? I mean, what was your role? Well, so I I um, uh, was both in the VB and the C sharp design team. So I kind of you know worked with both teams uh, on VB. Uh, Nine and uh, C sharp trio. And before that, you know, when I was uh, an academic, I, I already did a lot of uh, research in this area. Um, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I designed uh, a number of languages that attempted uh, kind of similar goals that Link has. You know, trying to um, put data programming, you know, support directly into the programming language instead of going via libraries or APIs. Okay. And uh so were you were you really involved in helping to implement link in those languages uh or was it was it a high level involvement or did you actually get to roll up your sleeves and do the work? Well, so I was I was in the design uh, team um so that was like for example for C# Sharp, that means, you know, three afternoons a week where we're kind of designing the language and all nitty-gritty details. Um, for VB, that's kind of two afternoons a week um, where we do the same. And then um, I also had a, a team here that did the XML integration in VB. That was like two mornings. So I kind of spent, you know, nearly all of my time um, on, on, on the design. Um, I didn't kind of write uh, any code in the actual compiler or, or, or things like that. I, I wrote kind of a lot of demos, but it's kind of mainly design. Um, but I was, yeah. Um, okay. Um, you know, let me just share with you my observations about developers um, in the in the RD community and the MVP community and some of the old timers that I know. You know, I've talked to a lot of them, and the question comes up: What do you think about Link? And I've noticed, and tell me if you find this is true also, that the the programmers who are like me, who are like you know. One-man shops, they work on small projects and, uh, you know, maybe research projects for talks and, and things like that. They, you know, they're, they're probably not getting a lot of 
uh, excitement around Link. But those who are developing large enterprise applications where there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of objects to manage, that's where uh, that's where they really, really think that Link is a godsend. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, well, I think you know that, that you know the small shops uh, probably also um, uh, should benefit or will benefit a lot uh, from Link um, because the way I look at it, like you know, um, if you look at SQL programming as you do it today, you know, if you're using say you know ADO.NET or or some existing framework as it currently ships, um, where you have to write uh, SQL strings by hand. Um, and I think, you know, it, you, you have already benefits, even if your applications are fairly simple and don't involve thousands of tables um, and things like that. You know, I just, you know, I, anybody that writes, you know, a SQL thing that, that uh, as a string and gets back a data set or, or something like that, I think is better off using link. Um, or, you know, link to SQL or link to entities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're dealing with XML, um, I, my kind of, you know, I think the joke is getting old, but uh, DOM means in Dutch means uh, brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, you know, everybody uses XML, and I think that's kind of, you know, getting so much easier uh, with Link um than before well i actually got a story about that and uh, it's funny you brought it up that just this morning um we had an email server uh meltdown here and it was a planned meltdown but we basically stopped using a third-party email and moved over to a hosted system so in doing that i was left with these people who had contacts in an imap uh xml file and no real way to move them up to this new system. So um, just having done a DNR TV episode or two with Don XML on XML to link, uh, link to XML, rather, uh, I just picked out the sample code and followed it very easily and was able to, you know, move all that data into a CSV file in about, you know, half an hour. Yep. And um, And it worked, and it was easy and great. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I would never have done this with XPath. I just don't know enough about it, you know, to to be able to do it. And it strikes me that this is the strength of Link, that one querying methodology, and it's the same whether I'm talking to SQL or I'm talking to XML or some other chunk of data. Yep, that's that's exactly the kind of power. So the way kind of I, I usually explain it is that if you look at, you know, the way these query languages and data models are, are currently kind of, you know, um, in silos, right? So you have like SQL that has, um, or like relational data that has SQL, then you have like XML that has XPath or XQuery or, or XSLT. And then, you know, even if you're, if you're trying to write, um, object oriented programs over, um, Collections, you know, you, you have to write kind of, you know, ad hoc queries with loops and things like that. Um, and the nice thing of Link is that it kind of, you know, factors out the commonality between all those data models instead of emphasizing the differences. So the thing is that, you know, if you look at all those data models, there's a lot of commonality because they're all dealing with collections of things. And what Link gives you is that, you know, the, the Link query expressions or query comprehensions, um, you know, those allow you to express, you know, the operations on these collections. And then um, the data model is kind of, you know, it doesn't really matter that much because all the queries are are kind of at this higher level of abstraction. Um, so you only have to learn, you know, how to, to formulate queries over collections and then it will work over anything. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that. And And the thing is then that maybe kind of benefits the small shops even more, right? Because there you, you have to do all this, you know, with, with a limited amount of people. So you cannot afford to have people that specialize in XPath or XSLT or, or something like that, you know? So just knowing C-sharp or VB uh, gets you way, way further than, you know, before. That's a good explanation of it. It's exciting to me. As a data guy, I looked at things like the idea that I would be able to take two collections from different sources, say a multi-select select select box, 
or a drop-down box where I've selected six or seven different items, and then that is actually pulling uses used as selection criteria to pull data from a database. And I could write this as a single expression in link, really as a join. Yep. The only thing that makes me nervous then is how is that actually implemented? How smart is it to do that efficiently? Would it actually just pull all the data from the database and then filter out that which it didn't need based on the join or... You know, how's it going to work that out? It, it, when I hand code stuff like that, I would actually create a connection to the database, create a temporary table, fire those half a dozen rows from the selection up, and then do all the work on the database. But then I'm a database geek. That's how I would do those things. Yeah, no, well, that, that's a very good question. So the thing is, you know, link is no silver bullet, right? So it's not that, you know, suddenly, you know, magic happens. Right. So you, you still have to be kind of mindful and... Um, where things execute, you know, whether they execute locally or remotely and things like that. Um, so, so there's no kind of magic there. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I really expect that, you know, people will often kind of, you know, inspect the SQL that, you know, link to SQL or link to entities will generate to kind of, you know, understand what's, what's really, you know, goes on where. But the nice thing is that you can now formulate you know your your problem at a, at a higher level of abstraction, um, and and so a lot of the kind of noise is taken care of. But you know you still have to think about the you know efficiency of your program and you know uh, where things execute. You know if you can push if you can do some filtering on the database, that's uh, probably more efficient than bringing huge amounts of data to the client and filtering it there and things like that. So you know. In that respect, you know, things don't change, but it just makes it kind of, you know, you have to write less and, and at a higher level of abstraction. I think that already kind of um, you gain a lot by that. So given the scenario I just sort of painted there, would the solution be to not use link there? Or is there a way to go underneath link and say, and I want you to do it this way? Oh, no, I think, you know, it it, it definitely you can do this with link. Um um, and you know, if you and if you write your query right, you know you can get exactly what you want, where you know things are executed on the database, um, and and you know you you, you um, do the join uh, over there. Right. So there is a way for me within Link to say I want you to execute this join on this server, rather uh, than do it here. Yes. So and the thing is, it's not kind of you know all that kind of explicit. So you have to kind of you know look at your query and the way you know you write your query. So it it kind of depends on what is where the query is kind of um, how the query is formulated. So um, and now we're kind of going a little bit into kind of you know very deep details. But uh, usually when you're kind of you know the first data source that you're selecting from, that is where the query is executed. Ah, interesting. But I think so. these are exactly the things that people want to know. That, yeah, I think that so. Link is big enough umbrella that you can use it for all of your querying re- requirements and are still going to be able to drill in and tune and to find a way to solve that performance problem. You know, 90% of my queries or 95% of my queries in Link are going to run just fine. And the few that don't, I don't have to recode them. I just have to tweak them. Uh, yes. And, 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 um, the nice thing is also like in, in case that, you know, we, we give you a lot of, um, kind of hooks and so on that in case you really need to tune them, um, you know, that, 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 that we give you a way out. For example, you can map, um, um, a lot of things to stored procedures or, or things where you kind of, we give you hook points where you can bypass the kind of standard translation. So, you know, in case you really want to get control, you can do that. Cool. Now you can do that with attributes in your on your uh, entity objects. Is that true? Uh, yes. So there's kind of a lot of the, the way you can influence the mapping to do that. That's correct. That's pretty awesome that you can just build these entity classes and then decorate them with attributes that says, "Oh, by the way, this property is associated with this field in this database with this key." You know. Yep. Um, and 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 again, you know, it's all the way I look at it is that you know. Whenever you write code, there's it, it. There's two aspects to that, or well, of course, many more, but two main aspects. There's the kind of plumbing and so on that you have to do, and then there's the real formulation of the algorithms and solving the problem. 
Right. Um, and, and Link takes care of a lot of that low-level plumbing so that you don't have to think about that. But, you know, often or often, you know, in certain situations, you will have to kind of, you know, do a little bit of the plumbing and, and that, you know, we, we don't take that away uh, from you. But with a good code generator, you can alleviate some of that pain. Yes. Um, um, tell us about the, the data context class. Just uh, what is that? Because this is a new uh, a new thing in the link to SQL. Yes. So, so the data context class that is, you know, the in some sense, um, I would describe that that's the abstraction of your database. So that's the the um, you know the client side object that represents the remote database. So from there you can access tables. Um, transactions, your connection string, etc. So it, it kind of encapsulates, you know, your 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 database. Okay. So this is just, you know, kind of what it says. It's a context that identifies what your database is and abstracts it away. So yeah. then I I can be able to refer to that, and it'll pull data as needed. Uh, yes. Uh, again, and that that depends. So so the data context gives. Well, it it's kind of you know it does a lot of things. So. Uh, for example, when you say, you know, um, will the data be um, loaded? You know, that is one thing that you can um, uh, set on the data context, whether you want to have like eager loading or lazy loading. So th- this is kind of one of the things that that you can um, control um, on there. So it's like uh, another thing is that what, what the data context does is change tracking. So when, you know, you get... Um, an object from the database into memory, um, and you do another query that will return the same um, object or, you know, a row that, that represents the same object, you know, it will keep track of that and will return the same object. It will do change tracking for you such that when you change the object and then you um, want to submit the changes back to the database, you know, the data context will will know what to update in the database. So it's... it's uh, it's really the data context is the heart of 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 link to SQL and and also kind of link to entities has similar similar mechanism there. That's that's what you use to do your CRUD basically, right? You the submit changes, for example. Yes. To save, yeah. But I can also see where being able to say these are type tables and they've only got a few hundred rows in them, and I want them eagerly loaded, where this is the order table and it's enormous and we're really only ever going to write to it so i don't need that thing loaded being able to make those different specifications means that so much is going to run quickly now because you're preloading the right things you're able to execute locally uh, a lot of information that at your fingertips rather than having to keep going back to the database and retrieve it over and over and over again yep that's correct um and so so here's one way you know you can you can look at this right the fact that you know this data context is is such a you know it, it it encapsulates a lot of functionality and this is what you would normally have to write by hand and everybody would have to write this by hand and these things you know these are all quite subtle things like you know change tracking or or you know eager loading lazy loading how do you do that what do you kind of you know if you want to do eager loading um, you know what. Can you filter stuff that you bring in and, and so on? How do you traverse relationships? All of that is all kind of done, you know, by the data context and influenced by mapping. Um, and, and the query translation, so, you know, you write your link queries um, in as expression you know, using these uh, query comprehensions, and then the data context takes those and translates them to SQL. So it's, like, enormously powerful um, and that's where you get the added value. It almost seems like what the data adapter and, and data table uh, could have been, you know, should have been or whatever. You know, the full realization of that that kind of uh, entity. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this is like, uh, you know, it's that, that's how uh, technology evolves, right? You know, sure. you, you cannot have everything, you know, if, if everything would be... Um, Done, you know, when you ship it, you know, we uh, would be uh, without jobs, right? Not, not, definitely not a slam against the data adapter and data set. I mean, they, you know, those are what they are. Can, can you tell me a little bit about object identity and how um, an object that you create uh, from data in a database, 
you know, if you have multiple copies of that object, how how does that work? Are they singletons? Uh, what? Uh, how does that? How's that managed? Because I I think that's a thing that can get out of hand pretty easily if it's not managed. Okay, so so this is kind of you know a, a very interesting kind of difference between um, relational data and in memory data is what is the notion of identity. Yeah. So in memory, usually you know two objects are considered to be equal if they're reference equal, right? If they're the same um, pointers to the same thing in memory, because mm. you know if if I'm if if you have a pointer to the same thing as I have, then when we make changes to this thing, you know we can both observe these changes. So that's kind of the real notion of, of object identity. Um, in the database, it's, it's slightly different. Their identity is determined by the primary key. So, you know, if, if there's only one thing in the table, primary keys are, are um, unique. So there can only be one row that has, you know, that thing as the primary key. So now when you're moving things from the database to memory, you have to make this translation between uh, primary keys and uh, reference identity. Um, and that's what the data context that takes care of. So um, it, it's basically a cache that, you know, maps um, the primary keys to, to the objects that it materialized for these rows. So is there any kind of object synchronization between objects that are pointing to the same entities in the data? Yeah, so when when you're kind of you know doing multiple queries that will that return you know the same row with the same um, primary key, mm-hmm. the, this the data context will you know um, not materialize a new object for that, but it will kind of you know just return the the, the, the existing object. What if I've got two independent objects? Then one's not a reference to the other, and they're both looking at the same data, and one updates. Does the other automatically get updated, or does it have to be pulled? Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I, I kind of really understand your question, but suppose let, let, let's make it try to make it concrete, right? Sure. Suppose I have like you know a customer uh, a row in my table with some customer ID, and I've mapped that to a customer object. So now when you know I, I execute a query that that's in in which result this customer row uh, is present, once that object gets materialized, um, you know, something is created in memory. Now right. imagine that I'm doing a second query that will return the same row. Now I'm not making a new object, a new customer object, but I'm just returning the same one. So in memory, these things kind of point to the same uh, to the same object in memory. So when I make a change to one, it will, you know... It's it, actually the change to both because it's referring to the same object. Exactly. It's, it's an alias. And that's kind of what you want because right. that's, you know, that's the notion of identity. But that's fine for one machine. What happens when I have two? Well, yeah, or even two different uh, app domains or two different processes that are both accessing the same record. And, uh, you know, like a dynamic key set kind of behavior. Is, is, is one going to update when the database updates from another? Ah, okay. So that's, so, so the thing is like these, um, um, uh, this mapping is kind of per data context. So, and just like, you know, in normal database, when two people are doing, you know, independent updates, um, you know, the, the, uh, you have to kind of, you know, have some kind of concurrency mechanism to detect whether you're doing, um, whether you're you're writing to the same object and then um, throw some exception or abort a transaction or something like that. So, um, you, and and since object identity in memory is you know determined by this data context, you know if you're in, on two different machines, you know there obviously they will be two different, completely different objects because you know the, the heaps are not even shared between these two machines. Sure. Right. The only thing that's shared is the database. However. Uh, yes. So, um, but again, there's no kind of, uh, from that respect, from the database point of view, um, there's no difference whether, you know, the, the, the database gets updated, you know, by SQL or by SQL that's generated, you know, by, by link. Right. But so. it, is there some kind of locking criteria? Is it doing the check for the right after right to say, hey, this is different than when you first fetched it? 
Yes, yes, yes. So there's oh, kind of, you know, when you do the update, there's kind of optimistic concurrency check. Right. Um, and then you can kind of, you know, deal with when... when, when um, you so know, the when second guy's going to get an exception raised. We yes. can do that now with data adapters that basically check all, you know, with the where, big where clause, all the feed, the original values of the fields, or you could use a timestamp. Yes, and, and the thing is, you know, again, this is an example where, you know, if you would do it by hand, there's a lot of opportunity to make mistakes and so on. Yes, right. Um, and you rather have, you know, this thing, you know, some machine-generated code where you have, you have specified it as a higher level, and then, you know, this will be taken care of for you. But you still, I mean, and again, when I talked about before that, you know, we don't do magic, still, you know, if there's a conflict, you know, you still have to deal with it. It's not that suddenly, you know, um, sure. there's no such thing as free lunch, right? Yeah, no, sure. You, you're still going to have to resolve the conflict yourself. Exactly. Now, all I can hope for from Link is that it lets me know there is one. Yeah. yeah. Um, the join syntax in Link, how close is it to the join syntax in Transact SQL? Okay, that's uh, an, another kind of, you know, good question. So, um, there's a very big difference between the data models of SQL and Link. So in SQL, um, everything is kind of flat, right? Tables are, are rows of scalar values, and you cannot have, you know, um, tables that have tables as 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 values for for uh, columns. Um, so whenever you're doing in SQL, when you're doing joins or grouping. You really have to, I mean, and this is kind of my personal view, it's like they're always a little bit awkward because, you know, the result has to be flat. And and um, the best example, I think, even, you know, where, where this is more painful than joins is when you're doing grouping. So in SQL, when you're doing a group by, you immediately have to do an aggregate to make sure that the results are flat, right? So you do, you know, you... A group by, um, I don't know, year, and then, you know, you cannot get kind of chunks of, of things that are grouped by year, but now you have to kind of aggregate over each group such that the resulting table is flat again. Um, and the same in some sense is, is true, or in some sense it's really true for joints. And that's why in SQL you have like all these things like inner joints, outer joints, and so on, because the result is flat, and then, you know, you have to so, for example, if you're using a join to to do a one-to-many relationship, the result is flat, right? You have the one side and then the kind of the first one of the many and then the one side, the second one of the many, and then, you know, the thing is flattened. My rule is, uh, my rule of thumb that I start with is uh, if I use joins for read-only data, and if I'm going to actually do any updating, I'm going to use a hierarchy. Yep. It's just easier that way, or if, unless you're using like a, you know, a view or something, an updatable view. Yeah. Uh, updatable views are dangerous. They are. Uh, you know, the other issue that always wobbles around in my mind on this, and, I, and I've talked to this, uh, when I've been talking about link to folks like Scott Hanselman, we, this comes up, and it's data typing. Because the data types between the CLR, between .NET, and between SQL Server, they don't match up. They're different in, in certain ways, like whether or not something's signed or unsigned. Those can really re wreak havoc. That, that, that's kind of, you know, always a kind of a, a, how should I say, a painful thing, right? For example, like take things like, you know, decimals, right? There's like a difference there. Um, even strings, you know, in SQL, sometimes, you know, strings have trailing white space, you know, that is... Sometimes they don't. There's, there's one of each. Or, heck, get into Unicode. Now you're really scared. Yep. Um, and, and so there, you know, again, you have to be kind of really careful um, what you're doing. Um, and again, this, this, this is no different than when you would do um, data access by hand. Um, and we, but we're, you know, when you're doing this at this high level, we're trying to kind of, you know, help you because we, uh, there's a lot of kind of knowledge about these things kind of, you know, um, built into the compiler. Um, but yeah, that's that's something where you have to be kind of very careful. Um, that's for sure. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates: Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep? 
Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls Easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. So looking at the, the data context, which is essentially an object containing data from the database, what happens when you're looking at a reel from SQL Server going into a double in Visual Basic and into that object? Are you doing that translation automatically? Are we going to get rounding errors or lose some decimal places sometimes? Um, yes. So, so like whenever you kind of move data kind of, you know, between boundaries, you know, things get kind of, you know, uh, um, lost or modified, right? Um, right. And, and so the thing is, you know, um, and the same here, it's like the, the behavior of, um, so what we try to do is to make the behavior of a query that runs in memory as cl- matches closely when the query runs remotely. Right. But that's kind of, you know, not always possible or not always practical. Um, you know, like, let me, you have to be a little bit pragmatic there. If you want to try to, suppose that you want to ensure that um, a query that you run on, on the server has exactly the same semantics, you know, exactly the same outcome as a query that you would run um, on the client. Yes. Um, now you would, you know, kind of simulate the CLR semantics with everything inside um, SQL, and that's kind of not practical. Here, here's one example that that's kind of even maybe simpler than, you know, like rounding errors. Yeah. If you're creating an object in um, in your query, like in in an intermediate result, um, on in SQL, you know, you, you we don't call the actual constructor, right? We just kind of construct the object. Um, the compiler knows how the object that you construct look like, such and when you later project, it knows how you know what the what the value is that it needs to for the projection. Um, if you would run in the CLR, the constructor could have all kind of side effects um, that are not you know then uh, done when you run this kind of constructor in this translated SQL. Right. Right, you're uh, you're on the back of a rocket ship here. <laughs> Be careful. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, you know, there's um, and I keep saying this, but um, and I think all of programming is like that, right? You know, you can make the how should it, uh, the boilerplate and the kind of grunt work. Um, you can eliminate that, but the hard problems kind of usually you know remain, and that's nice because now you kind of. Um, removed all the kind of boring stuff such that you can concentrate on the hard problems. I just worry whether these are going to be resolvable or, I mean, for me, again, as a data guy, I'm always afraid that errors are going by undetected, that you took a value from an unsigned integer and loaded it into something that is a signed integer. Am I going to get an error message? Let me know that that happened. Or, Or just suddenly I get these weird negative numbers I didn't expect. Yep, no, I, I agree with you, but let's kind of, you know, look at a slightly different example, right? Suppose you're doing, you know, some um, remote call using SOAP. Right. Right, and now I'm sending, you know, this XML representation of some values over to a server. Um, there, some computation is happening, and it sends back the result. Um, and again, I don't know what the server really 
um, is maybe it's a COBOL program that has, you know, some some representation of integers or, or something like that. Right. So also there, you know, whenever you cross boundaries, you know, you, you have to be very careful um, because the, 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 the represent, representations of types are not the same. We, we can try to do, you know, to make that as, as painless as possible, but, but there will be pain points that remain. Eric, can you compile queries in Link? Uh, yes. So you can pre-compile queries. So, um, well, the thing is, like, when you, when you execute a query, it gets compiled into SQL. Um, but there's also a way to say, well, I want to kind of pre-compile this query such that, you know, you can, for example, pull that out of a loop if you're doing query inside a loop. And then, you know, it, it will be compiled only once and, you know, up front. Right. And I guess the answer I'm sort of digging for is when we have these problems, is it all very clear that this problem is taking place? You know, you know, you're going to have to do some work here to manage that. But is Link going to help point the way to there may be a data type issue here? Um, in, in terms of warnings and things like that, yeah. Um, no, I don't think so. It's like you know, it's like the 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 there's a spec that tells you exactly you know how the data types are mapped and so on. Right. So um, there is a spec know, on that. And you're going to get an error message from something like SQL Server if you try and feed it a number that it can't handle for whatever reason. But that's it. Yep. Link link maps as well as it can. And if there's an issue, you're you're going to see it somewhere. But you got to go check. Yep. Uh, this is what they made testing for. Yep. Exactly. Um, and and you know look at it this way, right? Um, even if you're you know, there's always a, a lot of um, kind of debate about static versus dynamic typing and so on. But let's look at, you know, even if you're writing, say, in pure C-sharp, and I'm writing a, a, a method that takes an integer, right? That the fact that I say it takes an integer doesn't really capture, you know, what I'm expecting from that integer. Maybe, you know, expecting only a positive integer. There's so many different kinds of integers now. Exactly, and and so you know the thing is the same here. It's like you know there's it the 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 contract that that you kind of can express statically um, is kind of you know always weaker than what you know you really have in mind. So you always have to be you know have some other way by testing or or dynamic checking um, if it really matters that you have to do. Yeah, and it, in, I guess this gets into the whole dynamic element of this that. The, that checking has to be done somewhere, and you're going to have to manage it. Yes. So, changing gears a little bit, I'm going to I'm going to push it back towards the science side of things because I know you come from here. Over the past few weeks, we've done a number of shows talking about the functional languages and their their concepts around that. We've even gone into lambda calculus somewhat. Well, well, okay. Correction: you went into lambda calculus. <laughs> I sat on the sidelines and went. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So far, all these shows have been talking about research projects, stuff like Spec Sharp and F Sharp and, and uh, Polyphonic C Sharp and so on. They were always something else that you could connect to Studio. But it strikes me that Link really is the first manifestation of some real functional programming concepts in the core language, in C Sharp. Of course, works for VB as well. Yep, that's correct. So if, if, if we kind of look at the, um, the, the history, like, like I kind of referred to a little bit in the beginning. So if you, if you look at what makes Link really work, it's this fact that we kind of abstract over this notion of collection. Um, and that, you know, all the queries can be expressed in terms of the standard query operators. Right. These standard query operators, um, if you look at them, they are kind of higher order. It's like an algebra, but it, it, it's a higher order algebra. So it means that it takes functions as arguments. And for example, the, the best known example is a filter, like where. Where, yeah. It, that, that takes a function from the elements to bool, you know, that checks whether this, this, um, elements should be included in the result set or not. And, and that's where these lambda expressions come in. They are, um, in some sense, a lambda expression is people kind of make a big deal about them, but they're not, you know, if you're doing object-oriented programming, you already know what lambda expressions are. They're very lightweight objects that are, that just contain a single method, um, 
and you know we we knew them before in .NET, you know, as delegates, and they're really because what is a delegate? Well, that's just you know a class that has a single method, so you don't bother to you know name the class separately, but but you use the method name as the kind of you know the type. Um, and and lambda expressions are nothing more than you know a very lightweight way to create delegates. Um, but again, they have a kind of you know a long history in research, and you know, functional programming is where you only use you know functions to program. Right, but this seems like a functional construct to represent data, and like I said, there's not that many pieces to it. It's retrieve a row, retrieve multiple rows, uh, filter that, sort it, group it. I mean, what else is there? Yes, so th- th- there's it's surprisingly few, right? So there's, as you said, there's filtering, there's um, grouping, there's join. So that's kind of you know like that's in some sense merging two collections, right? Um, and then there is you know um, weird ones that um, you know it's like aggregation where you're taking collection and you're applying some kind of operation to kind of aggregate so like you know adding all the numbers or multiplying or 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 finding the minimum or things like that yeah grouping well that's not really grouping right there you're really aggregating usually you're doing a grouping and then you aggregate each group into a value right right um and so so there's like a handful of of operators really and using these operators you can express all these queries um, and that's kind of the, the the thing that mathematicians realized, you know, in the 1920s that you know there, that this, there's a very rich um, mathematical structure that you know it's called monads that um, that you know that represents these operations, and and that's what we're really kind of building on. Eric, I got to ask you: um, you helped design this system. Have you ever seen code written with Link that was too complex for you to follow. Um, Just like something like, completely out, outrageous. Well, the thing is, I would say, you know, I, um, I have seen some pretty complicated link queries, but now if you would um, write those in SQL, then they would be, I think, completely um, incomprehensible. So, so, so you haven't really taken a look at anybody's code and said, whoa. What is that? Yeah, but you know, you have that. You know that that happens with normal code too, right? And <laughs> sure. I mean, it, it just it's it, it's just amplified because you're doing so mi- so much more with a single line of code now that you know you, you, your tools become more powerful, but your output remains the same. You know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what does that do? Yeah, but 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 I, I I do think that in this case it is really an advantage because, like again, I, I've seen queries that. Um, where, you know, it's like, you know, in SQL, it would be a puzzle or something like, you know, you would break your head on, you know, you're doing a complicated grouping with an aggregate that has lots of kind of nested subqueries. And in link, you know, you just write them because the, the, the power of link is that it's compositional. So you can, you can break up your query in little queries, and then you can understand and test each of these little queries piece by piece. And whereas in SQL, you have to often you know, create these monolithic big queries and you cannot just pull out, you know, a subquery and kind of test that in isolation. And I think that's kind of a big advantage that allows you to write, you know, more complicated queries and still understand them. You know, now I'm I'm thinking back here over the breadth of the what we're talking about with Lincoln thinking, is this a replacement for ORM for object relational mapping, or is this just a feature you would use with it? I think it's 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 a feature you use with it. So if you look at Link, it it's kind of you know several things. So um it's the standard query operators. So right. these are the kind of you know, these the primitives that we talked about, like filtering, grouping, joining, and so on. And then it's a number of kind of what I call domain-specific libraries for each different data models. For example, um, if you look at link to XML, that is, you know, an API for kind of, you know, manipulating XML trees that is kind of, you know, designed to interact well with the standard sequence operators. But in principle, you know, like the... um, 
the the operations on on the XML trees are kind of you know really only for XML. So if you ask for give me all the attributes of this element or give me all the descendants, those are just like very XML specific. Um, and similarly for kind of relational data, that's where the ORM stuff comes in. You know you have to kind of specify what is the mapping between your tables and your objects. You have to you know, have this data context where, you know, you're you're talking about, you know, updates and, you know, adding stuff to the tables and so on. And then on top of that, you know, you use these the implementation of the standard query operators for that domain. So it it's like, you know, it it it's these kind of two parts is the query mechanism and then the kind of specific library for, you know, relational or for XML and you know or for in memory. You know Right. You know, when, when I originally asked you that question about uh, what people thought about Link, it was really the memory model that I was thinking of, you know, searching for objects. Um, the, the D-Link stuff is obvious. It's obvious that that's a home run for anybody who's doing any kind of development work in the database. And uh, the XML stuff we'll, we'll talk about too. But, uh, but aggregating objects and lists and things like that, you know, instead of keeping references around to objects that exist in lists and those, you know, leaking out and getting all sorts of uh, sorts of bad habits around that. Now you can just query for the object that you need. Is that the idea? Is that uh, the fundamental difference in programming with lists and, uh, and objects? Yeah, so, so one, I'm not sure that you're kind of, you know, hinting at this, but what you cannot do is to say, you know, Find me all buttons um, whose back color is green. Yeah. L- let's kind of talk a little bit about that because that, you know, certainly would be cool. But now, um, how would that work with the kind of, you know, garbage collector, right? Because if, you know, if, if you always can kind of, you know, find all instances of, of objects, it means that they have to kind of, you know, somehow remain alive or, or you have to have some, like... Um, collection or you know where where you can get that them so it's like you know that it would be cool but you know there's also um some problems with that um, yeah it, you don't want a query to be the reason that an object is persisting in memory exactly so so the thing is like you know again if you want that you know you can do that by by creating an extent for that holds your objects and then you can query that um so what you really would do is you're creating if you want that you would create another data context for your in-memory objects, right? And whenever you create the object, you know, it would kind of, you know, be in that data context. Right. Um, but again, that's not, um, you know, that doesn't come out of the box. Um, and, and you see also kind of there's another difference between relational data and in-memory data. Because in a relational database, you have to kind of explicitly delete your objects and you have to kind of, you know, Think about cascading deletes and so on, because it's never clear when something is unreachable and can be garbage collected. Right. Yeah. It does impair that in general. So, so what is the usefulness of it then? I mean, if uh, are you? I'm not sure what you're saying here. Are you saying that it's it's not a good idea to query for objects in memory with with link? Oh no, no, not at all. But the thing is, what what I'm saying is that you that you. When you query for objects in memory, you know, you keep the collections of interesting objects, you know, you keep them around yourself in lists or something. And what I'm saying is that you cannot query the heap itself. I see. Right. Yeah, you have to query a list. Yes. And then it's kind of extremely useful. I mean, if you compare that with, like, you know, writing loops with conditionals and things like that, um, because, you know, I think... In memory data is like you know as interesting as you know XML or, or relational data, and often you know the in memory case is where you kind of really do the integration, right? I, I have some stuff that I got from the database. I get some stuff that I got from XML. Maybe I've got some stuff that I got from you know my list, my 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 disk, and yeah. I want to now kind of query over all of them. Um, and they are all kind of represented as 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 objects. So uh, I guess you know what's the advantage of that versus what we do today. What do we do today when we want to find an object? Do we just keep a reference to it? Do we just access it by a key in a dictionary? I mean, what's 
What, is that uh, is that not a good idea now that we have Link? Oh no! So again, there nothing changes there. If you today, it's exactly what you're saying. If you want to, you know, keep, if you want to get at, you know, objects that you're interested in, you put them in in a table or in an array or in a list. Um, the big difference is when you want to now do something with these objects. Currently, you write imperative code, right? You write a for each loop or you or or you know for loop or something like that. Um, whereas now. You can write this exactly the same kind of queries that you write against XML or, or, or database tables on these in-memory collections. Um, again, so it's this kind of unified way. It's like you know, there, there's no difference when you think about querying them. So really, so really, you're getting away from nested loops and all kinds of things where you're iterating and uh, and moving into like a, a a statement that does this against this set of of uh, objects. And here, here's an example, right? If you, if you, it's a good thing that you mentioned this kind of nested loops, um, because often, you know, you kind of fall in the trap if you want to do a join, you know, and you do it in an imperative way. You're writing a nested loop that kind of iterates over these two collections, and then you know, oh yes, I could build a hash table, you know, and do all this. But usually, you know, that's kind of a lot of work, and your code starts to look really ugly. Um, but now, you know, if you would do it in link, you would just use the join operator and that kind of encapsulates, you know, all that so that you don't get a nested loop, but you build, you know, you're really doing a hash join in memory. Yeah, the, the hash is still happening. You just didn't have to write the code for it. Exactly. Again, it's like it takes away all that kind of, you know, plumbing that you would have to do. And, you know, since, you know, we're all kind of, you know, just humans and often lazy. You know, you say, ah, you know, I don't, I don't do that. And, um, and now this, you know, you, you get that kind of encapsulated in this operator. Eric, tell us about the select many operator. Okay. This is a, re- and just a random, you know, speaking of non sequiturs. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, so the select many is, is kind of an interesting operator. So, um, to kind of, you know, understand that one, um, imagine, uh, let, let's look at a slightly simpler one and then um, uh, uh, kind of look at this one. So suppose you have a collection and I want to uh, apply a certain function to each of these uh, elements in this collection, okay? That's kind of, you know, uh, that's a select or it is called in functional programming a map. So you're mapping, you know, this function to each element. It would be like you're doing a for each loop and you're kind of applying this function to each element. Right. Now imagine the function that you're applying returns a collection. Okay. So, for example, you know, I have a collection of customers and I'm selecting the orders. So if I would just apply that function to each each um, customer, I would get a collection of a collection of orders, right? Because for each customer, I would get a collection of orders. Right. But often now you want to have not a collection of a collection of orders, but just all the orders kind of unioned. I want to have just a, a giant collection that contains all the orders of all the customers. And that is what select many does. So if I say, you know, if I have customers and I do select many of orders, then instead of getting a collection of collections of orders, I get a flattened collection of orders. Um, and then I can kind of, you know, query on that um, after that. I can then filter or do some grouping or something like that. So it's kind of a way to kind of do a an operation on each element of a collection and flatten the result at the same time. And by doing that in kind of one operation, that's often more um, efficient. You know, most of the language that we see around Link is focused on retrieving data. Uh, what does inserting data look like? Are you really just populating one of these structures and then updating it? Or is there a true concept of an insert as a completely different um, function? Okay, that's uh, a- another very good question. So one of the, so like um, in SQL, you can do kind of a, a kind of query to do a, a, an insert, right? So you can write or, or a query to do a delete. Um, right. So like bulk insert and bulk delete. So um, in, in link to SQL, we don't have that yet. So there's nothing kind of fundamentally preventing us from doing that. Um, we just kind of, you know, um, 
there, you know, you have to kind of make your choices what, you know, what you ship. Um, yeah, the, you couldn't so, do everything, so you did, you know, the things that you really needed. Yes, and, and so the way you do, you know, inserts and, and, and changes and so on is by kind of doing instance-based. So you kind of, you know, make changes to the individual objects or you kind of add objects individually to your kind of, you know, tables or collections and then, you know, we, we generate the SQL to do the update. So there's no kind of bulk update or bulk delete where you give a query um, that will then, you know, don't bring them in memory first. But again, there's nothing fundamental to, to prevent us from doing that. Um, and we kind of discussed that, like, you know, way, way back in the design meetings. Um, but the thing and it's is... It's always that, about what features can you implement this time around. I'm sure it's on the stack for later versions. Uh, exactly. And also, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, in in terms of objects, right, I think, you know, you you want to manipulate objects. That's the kind of, you know, um, I, I think a more intuitive way of, of, of doing things. So um, we felt that that was, you know, at this point, more important to get all that right. Uh, Eric, so far when we've talked about linked to SQL, it's always been about SQL Server. What about other databases? There's the link to entities that will have a kind of provider model that will allow, you know, multiple databases. Um, so there's definitely, you know, there will be a, a provider model where you can plug in uh, other databases. Um, and and again, you know, the, the whole thing with link is that, you know, there it's it's as as long as you can kind of, you know, take these expression trees that represent these queries and you can compile them to whatever query language that you have, um, it will work. So, um and, and, and I would like to kind of take the opportunity to kind of drive this point home is that, you know, it's not necessarily SQL, right? So imagine that you have like, you know, SharePoint that has right. its own kind of query language. Um, I think it's called Camel. Um, now you can take these expression trees and there's, there's, you know, uh, somebody on the web that, that has like a link to SharePoint that takes these expression trees and compiles them to that. You can imagine that you have like, you know, Amazon that has like, you know, a query language for querying the Amazon catalog. You right. can take expression trees and compile them to that. So, so link in, that's the kind of immense power of it is that it's, you know, it, it abstracts, you know, from the underlying kind of query mechanism and says, well, you know, if you can take these standard query operators and translate them to this particular query language that's exposed by the data source, then everything will work. Is this something that the regular developer is ultimately going to be able to take on or maybe an advanced developer to build their own provider that Link can call to? Oh, yes, I definitely, you know, you already see it, right? If you just kind of, you know... Um, search on the web for, you know, like link to, um, you know, SharePoint or link to um, Amazon or link to Flickr or, you know, there's many, many people that are building um, these kind of, you know, custom link implementations. Oh, right. Now I'm thinking uh, uh, Iende did one, a link to N-Hibernate. That's right. Yeah. Yep, and so so I expect you know that this you know in the next year or so once we have shipped that this will kind of completely explode and that you know there's a whole kind of you know ecosystem waiting um, to kind of grow up there where people will take you know whatever existing data source or web service or or something and and will kind of link enable it. Eric, I'm thinking that this might be the new API. You know, uh, just a, a standard API that instead of exposing, you know, if you go to like, uh, I don't know, Amazon.com or eBay or Google or whatever, you, you know, they all publish APIs in different formats for, they even have them for .NET, but they're very simple, you know, get a list of objects, update this one, whatever. Yep. I, I think, you know, that that's my, my kind of dream. If, if we can kind of, you know, do some kind of, you know, um, dreaming at the end, I, I would kind of, you know, like to see that all these things expose iQueryable um, of, the, of the kind of data type, yes. And that would be really nice. We really haven't dug into this idea that link over top of something like web services really talks about a rem real remote link, a link where the, the it's substantially slower, where it's got to tolerate erratic connections and so forth. That that's a pretty cool idea that I would write a link expression to fetch from a search engine. Yep. Very cool. 
Yep. So, and again, you know, I, I think, you know, we're, we're really kind of, you know, you have only seen the kind of, you know, tip of the iceberg. Um, and, and I think once people realize that how powerful this idea is where, you know, you write these expressions, these queries in your language, and, you know, the thing is that you do, you, you kind of implement your, your own standard query operators on top of your data source. And now I can query this, you know, from VB or C Sharp in this very high level way. It's just amazing. I mean, that's, it's, uh, very that's huge. It is huge. Yep, it's huge. And, and, you know, as I said, you know, this, I really expect that this will explode once we ship. All right. Well, Eric Meyer, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show this time for a full hour. Thanks again. Okay. It was my pleasure as well. And uh, we'll see you next time on DNR.net Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.